Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to share a very quick pitch for our online Writing for Impact and Influence science writing course, which is taught by yours truly and starting up again this July. Uh, the basic idea behind the course is to help scientists improve their outreach and professional writing with a real focus on individual feedback that will result in the preparation of publication-ready work. So I've really tried to put together the course in such a way that participants will leave with several pieces that that are ready to submit and share right away. Uh, there's a link in the show notes for more information, but also feel free to send me any questions over email at bioscience at AIBS.org. Uh, but now moving on to today's episode, I'm joined by three guests, Jessica Farrell and David Duffy of the University of Florida's Whitney Lab and Sea Turtle Hospital, and Liam Whitmore of the University of Limerick in Ireland. That's also the order in which you'll first hear them answer questions in case you'd like to put names to voices. They were here to talk about environmental DNA and RNA in aquatic sources and how sampling for that can help us monitor human and animal pathogens. And the conversation really ranges from a virus that causes tumor growth on sea turtles to SARS-CoV-2, which is, of course, the virus that's behind the current COVID-19 pandemic. Let's go to the interview. Thank you all very much for joining me today. Thank you for having us. Thanks for inviting us. Thank you for having us. Okay, and to get us started today, I was hoping that one of you and any of you uh, could give us a little bit of an introduction to environmental DNA and RNA, you know, how the technology was developed, uh, what it's been used on so far, kind of, you know, what are the basic applications, any background that you think our listeners would find helpful. Jessica, do you want to take that? Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, basically to, to summarize eDNA, so every organism, um, no matter how big or small, whether they're a human, a sea turtle, um, a virus in the environment, um, we all shed our DNA into the environment. And again, it doesn't matter what sort of environment that is. It could be the air, water, sand, soil. Um, and we shed our DNA in the form of skin cells, bodily fluids, um, hair, scales, anything that could possibly fall off your body as you're moving throughout the environment. And once that DNA is in the environment, it logically becomes environmental DNA um, or its cousin molecule, environmental RNA. And um, there have been molecular technologies around um, for several decades now where we're able to um, take a sample from the environment and detect what DNA is present in there. And with that, we can answer lots of questions ranging from um, what animals might be in a particular environment, their habitat ranges, um, and even we're starting to be able to monitor the presence of their diseases in the environment, whether um, it's a virus or a fungus or a bacteria, uh, we're able to detect all of that. Okay, and just out of curiosity, is this done mostly in aquatic sources or you know, are you also taking land-based samples? So I think it originated, and Dave can correct me, so it actually started the first environmental DNA detection was in soil. Um, we obviously will tell you a little bit about um, our background in research, but we focus primarily on marine environments, but um, it's in every environment. There have been detections in um, snow, soil, the air, fresh water, marine water. So it's it's every environment um, that currently exists. Okay, and correct me if I'm wrong, but this technology was originally used for uh, monitoring the presence and absence of endangered or otherwise imperiled species? Um, yeah, so the, the first, one of the first ideas um, for it was to um, 
help detect organisms that were not um, as likely to be able to see visually. Um, so obviously the, there's quite a lot of human error when it comes to surveying animal populations, particularly if they're in an aquatic environment. You're only going to see them when they come up to the surface and that might not be the case with all of the organisms. And then when you get to endangered or invasive species, there are going to be much fewer of them in the environment, making it a lot less likely for you to be able to spot them. Um, so the the more original techniques um, or traditional techniques um, would usually just involve capture and observation surveys but obviously if you've got fewer animals in the environment because the population's declining you're going to be less likely to be able to view them in the first place um, so they started applying this eDNA detection because uh, you don't need to ever witness the animal in the environment you can tell whether it's there or not just by sampling the water that they could live in or the, the soil that they could live in. Okay, so kind of making up an example for myself um, to make sure that I've got the concepts right. Say there were, you know, an invasive fish species in a river like a, a snakehead. Um, and there were, you expected them to be there, if at all, in only very small numbers right now. Um, so the odds of going out there and, and catching the snakehead that, you know, you wanted to detect would be pretty low. Um, but if you were to sample the water, you might be able to get some minute trace of environmental DNA or environmental RNA um, that would let you know that it was present. Exactly. Yes, exactly. And there was a study done, well, several studies done, um, which we read a lot about when we were writing our paper on the Yangtze finless porpoise. I've probably pronounced that completely incorrectly, <laughs> um, but exactly like your sample, it's a river dolphin in Asia and um, the population was very low. They didn't know if they were in particular areas of the river and so instead of having to spend hours um, and lots of manpower on the rivers looking for them and waiting for a sighting, they were able to just collect water samples and tell which parts of the river they were in. Um, so yes, exactly like your sample, but with a porpoise. Right. And rivers are a great example as well, because if you think about a river, all of the water is flowing downstream, and downstream in the river, close to the sea, you're actually sampling the entire length of the river. So your sample has been brought to you, and there's been studies to show that you can detect DNA. It's been released upstream and along river systems, and they sample downstream, and they're able to detect it, and they're able to detect it in the ratio in which it was released as well. So it's kind of like a natural um, natural sampling device that's bringing eDNA samples to you. That sounds awfully convenient. Is this approach, you know, less expensive than traditional means? It sounds like it would be. Um, although, you know, I don't know how expensive those molecular technologies still might be. Um, yeah, so I mean, maybe when it started, it wasn't as um, cost effective. Um, but as the years have gone on and the technology has become more and more accessible and available, um, the price has decreased especially um, when we talk a little bit later about one of our case studies, um, eDNA has been transferred from the wildlife area of study to the human area of study. And so a lot of um, time and thought has been put into um, optimizing these technologies so that they're really as cost effective and efficient as possible. So it's definitely getting, if not past that crossover point of being more cost effective than traditional caption observation surveys, at least in terms of time, it takes a lot less time to be able to do a molecular approach than an in-person approach. And a lot of the savings are also in manners. If, if you're not relying on volunteers and you're having to pay trained people to be out in the field trying to observe and capture animals, which for endangered wildlife is often the case because you have to have people well-trained who are permanent, so you're not doing any damage. 
Um, so a lot of the cost for these traditional approaches, although the approach itself isn't very expensive, you have to spend a lot of money in terms of um, paying the people to be out in the field, paying for the, the boats or the vehicles that are, are driving them around the environment. So when you add all of those costs together, then EDNA comes out a lot more cost effective. Okay, great. And I think that gives us a, a good tease for the fact that we will be talking about um, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic a little bit later on and, and how this technology is applied to that. But before we um, discuss that, I was, I was hoping we could go through and chat a little bit about uh, your first case study in the article, um, a disease that I'm going to dreadfully mispronounce now, but the fibropapillomatosis tumor-associated herpes virus. Uh, That's perfect. I'm shocked. Um, but uh, why don't you tell, me, tell us a little bit about that and you know, kind of how um, you know, these technologies are applied in that case. Um, Liam, did you want to do this one? Yeah, too? I'll take that one. So fibropapillomatosis is the disease which manifests as a result of um, turtles being infected by uh, the turtles specific herpes virus. And it's also thought that it, there's some sort of environmental co-trigger that um, causes this virus to pass a sort of onco uh, <laughs> an oncogenic threshold, which then causes these sort of <laughs> benign tumors to grow um, on the soft turtles, uh, on the soft uh, tissues of turtles' skin and their internal organs. So one of the things we were interested in is this virus has been associated with these tumors, but people aren't really sure how the virus gets from individual to individual. There's a couple of different potential transmission routes. So one of them is uh, marine leeches, which will feed specifically on sea turtles. And we know we can detect the virus in the blood pellets of those leeches. But it was an open question for a long time whether or not the virus was directly shed into seawater and if just by being in close proximity to each other, the virus could transmit from one animal to another um, directly, essentially. Um, so that's kind of where the genesis of us starting to use eDNA came from. Um, we are in a rehabilitation hospital for sea turtles, so we get turtles with these tumours. Um, they undergo surgery until they're tumor free and get released uh, but in the meantime they're usually with us for a couple of months some, in some cases up to a year so we have these turtles in a confined environment they're in a tank um, so that was kind of an ideal opportunity for us to study um, viral shedding into the water and to try and start to answer some of the questions about whether the virus can be shed directly um, Jessica do you want to pick up on some of the results and how you went about the study? Um, yeah, so we were very pleasantly surprised um, to find that we could detect shedding of this virus. So it's a CHHV5 is the name of the specific herpes virus, and it's specific to um, sea turtles. All seven species of sea turtle uh, have have had it, um, but at the our sea turtle hospital, we mainly focus on green sea turtles as um, this is the species most heavily affected. Um, and so we were pleasantly surprised to find that we could detect the CHHV5 virus in the tank water of our patients. Um, and not only that, but we were able to start to be able to correlate it to the tumor burden of the patient. So depending um, um, on the size of the tumor and the number of the tumors, uh, the greater overall surface area of tumors on a patient, the more virus they were shedding into their tank water. Um, and so this was really interesting. And um, as Dave says, we've got a really unique opportunity of being able to um, 
use the rehabilitation environment to start to answer some questions. And so while the patients are with us, they um, are taken care of by the rehab team and our veterinarian. And she will remove the tumors with a carbon dioxide laser as she goes as she goes along and as the patients get um, healthy enough to be able to undergo such a surgery. Um, and as she was removing the tumors, the burden, sorry, the shedding of the virus into the environment was decreasing as that tumor burden was decreasing. Um, so it's kind of just starting um, to be able to answer questions for us, but it, it's definitely shed light on a potential transmission route through the water, which we weren't sure was happening in the first place. So that's been really exciting for us. And this was really important for us for a couple of reasons. One, just from the rehab setting that we know now that we absolutely should be quarantining animals. So if we have some animals who are tumor-free, they shouldn't be sharing tanks with animals who have tumors because we now know that those, those animals are shedding virus into the water. So there's the potential to infect uh, to naive animals. But it was also interesting kind of from a population point of view because similar to COVID, there was a lot of questions around if an individual is shedding more than others. So you may have these super spreaders who are going around populations and they're responsible for most of the transmission of the virus between different sea turtles. Um, and that was really an open question. There were some indications that these super spreader um, turtles may exist, but it wasn't really well defined. And actually from what we were able to show, it looks like that it really is just how many tumors you have to determine how much um, virus has been shed into the environment. It's not um, necessarily related to genetic susceptibility. It's not one turtle is going around infecting the whole population. If you've got animals out, out there with tumors, then they're, they're just likely to infect other animals. That's fascinating. So you've got you know a, a case in which you're actually able to examine the, the dynamics of the disease, um, you know, by monitoring the amount of you know uh, genetic material that's shed into the water. I have a question though. Um, I, I'm just a couple of curios points of curiosity about the disease itself. Is this a is it a novel virus or is this you know something that turtles have dealt with this burden for um, you know all time? This is this related to environmental change or anything like that? Uh, the herpes virus itself has sort of co-evolved with all seven species of marine turtle um, for sort of the millions of years uh, from like estimations. Um, but it's thought that sort of environment, the environmental side of it is the recent issue that is then causing this virus to develop into this tumor causing disease. Yeah, so it's kind of an ancient virus, but a new disease. Um, yeah. So normally if turtles are infected with this virus, they, they essentially develop symptoms that are, are no worse than a common cold. Their immune system deals with it absolutely no problem. You can find the virus all over the world in different sea turtle populations. Um, but in more recent decades, something is changing in the environment, which means the turtles can no longer handle the virus. Um, and then the virus is, is getting out of control and leading to this rampant tumor growth. So like one turtle can sometimes have hundreds of tumors. Um, they can also have them on internal organs. They can have them on their eyes. Um, so it really causes a lot of problems for them both in terms of capturing prey and avoiding predators. And obviously, if you get them on internal organs as well, that can lead to fatalities. So it really seems to be, although a specific causative factor hasn't been pinpointed yet, it really seems to be that there's something changing in the environment. It's in the environment when it's near to shore. And generally, areas with high human activity tend to have much higher rates of this disease, whereas more pristine areas, um, you still see very little of this disease in them. Um, so it's kind of something that's only really been a, a problem probably since the 80s, um, although we we're pretty sure um, that the virus, like Liam said, has been present in sea trails for a very long time. 
And there's definitely something to say for the fact that the the turtles most heavily affected by this are juvenile greens, and that's the species and the age class that live in the habitats closest to where humans are, are the inshore environment where there's going to be um, more contact with pollution and all of that. So that, that kind of makes sense along that thought of thinking. That makes sense to me too. And so what's the uh, prognosis like for the turtles after you've, you know, um, rehabilitated them and performed surgeries to remove their extant tumors? You know, do they still have the underlying virus? Is And is it just hoped that they'll, you know, be able to, um, you know, kind of repel future outbreaks of tumors or do you know yet? Yes, yeah, so it's a good question. And it's one of the concerns we have, and it seems to be they, they still have the virus. Um, and the question is probably more of we're releasing them back into the same environment. So it's, it is possible that the tumors are going to regrow. Um, and there's not very good follow-up studies, but we do know that in some animals, they will regrow tumors, they will restrand, and we sometimes get them back. Equally, there's been a couple of cases where you know, it takes from the age class that we get them as juveniles, it takes another 20, 30 years for them to reach sexual maturity. But there is now um, indications that animals that have gone through the rehab process are now returning and nesting. So at least some of them we know can survive long term. And we also know with the disease, um, as the animals get older, uh, once they become sub-adults and adults, they move away from the inshore environment and back out to the ocean. So naturally, by the time the animals get to that point, although they still have the virus, they're less exposed to these other triggers. So they tend not, adults tend not to have tumors. So if we can get them past this kind of vulnerable stage, they can actually tend to do quite well. Oh, that's great news. And I'm, I'm just wondering, if, have you made any attempts or considered um, you know, sampling from the marine environment itself rather than um, only in tanks to see if the you know, virus is present or are the concentrations too small for that? So of, of the virus, it's potential. So the marine environment, unfortunately, is harder to do eDNA sampling from than for freshwater. So things persist in freshwater for a lot longer than they do in the ocean. Um, the DNA will break down when it's exposed to UV um, or it's break down if the environment is more acidic. So different environmental conditions determine how long and the DNA will stay out there. Um, so we have started to to take oceanic samples and, and we're looking for the virus. Um, but at the same time, one of the other things we've been doing in parallel with the virus is we're developing assays for sea turtles themselves. So sea turtles are one of these cryptic species. It's very hard to, to count um, and to, to identify them because they spend very little time at the surface. So we've also been developing assays that at the same time as looking for the virus in the ocean samples. And we're able to look for the sea turtles themselves. And, and that's, that's working quite well for us. So you're actually able to see them out there? So we can see them. We can see them through eDNA, right. um, and generally, the case is if, if there's a positive sighting on those sampling trips, and uh, we most of the time will recover sea turtle DNA. So that's kind of if we know that the turtles are in the environment. But what's more powerful is even on most of the sampling trips, when there's no positive sightings, we can still detect sea turtle DNA. So that kind of highlights how much more powerful this approach can be. That if you're just relying on visual sightings, you're most likely undercounting the population and you're undercounting the range of, of animals. Um, so by using eDNA to complement those traditional approaches, you can actually get a much better picture of what's going on. Okay, so let's shift gears a little bit and um, talk about a topic that I think kind of exposes or explains sort of the breadth of this technology's usefulness. Um, and talk a little bit about the COVID-19 pandemic. What's the connection there? So, well, this is something that is, I mean, obviously the pandemic has come to as a surprise to most people over the last year, but in terms of 
the use of ED DNA technologies, how it's really progressed over the last years has been a bit shocking to us. So we've been working on on this Cedral virus for quite a number of years, and we know other groups who have been working on different wildlife diseases, um, but there's not been all that much happening in the human space by comparison. But that all changed dramatically with the arrival of, of um, SARS-CoV-2 on the scene. And it's a bit counterintuitive because you would think, okay, well, we've been talking about aquatic environments and what use is that going to be for a human pathogen? Um, but people have been very resourceful and they've adapted these sorts of eDNA approaches pretty rapidly so that they've been able to detect SARS-CoV-2 from, from air samples as well. Um, but primarily what they've been doing is um, checking human wastewater. So you can, they can actually extract this virus from human wastewater um, and they can tell how much COVID infection essentially is in a general population or in a specific city or town by measuring the abundance of the virus in, in the wastewater coming from people's homes. Um, and while that might not sound super impressive, we know just from testing of patients where the virus is, what was really impressive about this was that they could actually predict weeks, even up to about a month in advance of where hotspots of infection were going to be because um, patients are shedding this virus um, through excretion much sooner before they're presenting with symptoms. So it's actually an early warning system whereby just by measuring wastewater as it tends, and um, they can predict where there's going to see spikes, they can redirect resources towards those areas before you start to see the patient numbers increase. Yeah, and that, that speaks to one of the challenges of you know this that particular virus is that you know it has so many asymptomatic or perisymptomatic, presymptomatic, um, you know, expressions that you have people who are walking around potentially spreading the virus, but not exhibiting symptoms, but they are actually shedding the virus. So you can see it, you know, in the wastewater in advance. Yeah, absolutely. And again, that can inform um, lockdown approaches as well. So pre, pre-vaccination stages, if you want to lock, if, like, get into locking down specific areas, if you know the virus is circulating and you have two to three weeks advance notice of that, you can shut it down much sooner, which means you can potentially stop it from spreading to, to too many people. Whereas using just uh, patients presenting at hospitals and at testing centers, you know, you'd be three weeks behind the curve. So by the time you're trying to prevent the spread of that virus in that specific location, you've already had three weeks of, of um, transmission going on. And and you would already be in the position of, you know, potentially overburdening, um, you know, your, your hospital resources, and et cetera. Um, but if you caught it early, you could stop it when it was still relatively, you know, small number of, of patients. Absolutely. Exactly. And, and because it's this kind of aggregate sample, it actually takes a lot less sampling. So if you think of a patient, you're sampling every individual and um, you're having to do these tests. Sometimes patient need, patients need more than one test uh, over time. Whereas you can sample sample an entire population from a couple of wastewater samples um, because they go to the wastewater free treatment plants where all of this the sewage essentially is is aggregated in one area. So it's kind of like the river example we got before. You're using these these processes to to aggregate your sample for you so that by taking one sample at at a reservoir location or at a wastewater treatment plant location, you can you can sample from all of the, the areas that feed into that. Has this been applied at all in you know? Um areas that are less wealthy perhaps and lack the you know medical infrastructure for large-scale testing you know has this been used as a proxy for that in any cases or is that you know just a, a potential so because it's novel like similar to what we see with the vaccination program it's not equally distributed around the world these technologies tend to be developed in, in wealthier countries and they tend to be trialed in wealthier countries so it's mainly places like the us and europe that these these have been developed and trialed in 
but there is potential because like i said because it's more cost effective than going out and, and testing every individual there's absolutely potential for for use in, in more developing countries and equally not just for um SARS-CoV-2, but also for other diseases, a lot of diseases disproportionately affect um, developing countries where they may not be a problem for us. In places like the US, there's still diseases which are pretty common. And it's not just SARS that you can detect in wastewater, it's kind of any disease that can be shared, not just viruses, but other sorts of pathogens as well. So there, it is starting to move in that direction that they're, they're beginning to be used and they can be used in relatively remote locations as well because you don't need the same sort of clinical infrastructure to, to do this sort of sampling as you do necessarily for dealing with large numbers of patients. That's that's quite interesting. So, you know, could you potentially use this type of technology to, uh, you know, distribute flu vaccines or something like that on a on a basis where you know you were seeing the the largest number of cases and then you know you immediately rush them to the the right areas and um, you know distribute meager resources you know more equitably and quickly. Absolutely, if it's something that's resource limited or even if it's something that has more regional outbreaks or something like Ebola and, and these sorts of diseases have you know they don't they don't necessarily spread quite as far as as we've seen with SARS and COVID two it's it's a case of you know if you can get to the hotspots in time you can contain it so it, it's really it can be really transformative for for some of these other diseases which we know flare up from time to time as well and just I'm curious about SARS CoV two um, and it, the management thereof was it actually used in any cases um, you know in this present pandemic to adjust policy on the fly you know whether that be lockdowns or, um, you know, anything else? So one of the early uses was to actually realize that that this virus had entered countries months in advance of, of when people realized. So, for instance, um, some Italian towns that were very hard hit early on in the pandemic, researchers were able to go back to historical wastewater samples and they were able to identify that actually the virus was present up to a month before they realized, um, which also was able to inform people in relation to travel bans and things um, when when they should have been implemented. In terms of actually reinforcing or, or changing public policy, one of the things that probably most directly translated was work um, looking into how airborne this virus is and similar to what we did with turtles, they're looking at transmission. So researchers were able to go into hospital wards where people were infected and they were able to recover the virus at different distances from infected patients. And they were able to um, recover active virus. So they could use this sort of air sampling to figure out how far um, this virus can transmit through the air. And if you think back to the early stages of the pandemic, there was a lot of debate around this. Should we be wearing masks? Is one meter enough? Or should we be doing two meters or six feet here in the US? There was a lot of debate. There was a lot of uncertainty as to first, was it even transmitted through the air? And then what's a safe distance? Um, or unequally, is a distance even safer? Does it depend on the level of circulation? So by answering some of these questions with the air sampling, that, that has reinforced and being able to feed directly into public policy making in the sense of reinforcing that six foot rule um, in terms of having a clear understanding that it's not just about distance, but it's about how the air is circulating, if it's been filtered, if fresh air is coming into the environment. So. Um, well, I'm not sure if any resources have been directly proportioned in this instance based on the wastewater treatment. Absolutely, public policy advice has been strengthened and, and adapted based on what they were able to show of the, the transmission of this virus through the air. Okay, and so, you know, um, kind of looking, you know, beyond potentially SARS-CoV-2, I'm, I'm curious about 
the possibility of, you know, I, I detest to say the words, the next pandemic. Um, but if, if you were looking at a, a novel, you know, uh, virus, is there, is there a chance that you'd be able to detect it um, earlier? Do you need to know what you're looking for? Um, you know, is it possible to uh, take a sample and just kind of hunt around for novel viruses? Or do you necessarily need to know that, you know, you're looking for this one in particular? So both approaches are possible. We can do targeted where you're just looking for one virus or one pathogen of interest or one species, but there is technology out there where you can just sequence everything in a sample. So um, it's known as metagenomics. So instead of looking for one thing, you look for everything and um, you can figure out what's in there. So from the same sample, we don't just look for a C-turtle, we look for C-turtle and virus at the same time. And sometimes we will just sequence everything in there. So we're getting all of the microbes, all of the eDNA from different species. So it is quite possible to use it for monitoring and, and try and use it for novel identification um, of viruses. In in England, actually, they've in on the foot of um, the COVID pandemic, they've set up a, a national wastewater monitoring infrastructure, whereby samples from all of the regions are brought to labs and they're assessed for COVID. But they already intend to keep that after COVID. They're repurposing it towards um, just seasonal flu, and um, so they can keep track of of areas of where this flu is developing but are also keeping in place for future pandemics or for other diseases. So I think one of the reasons it was slow to inform public policy in relation to COVID as well as this was a technology that was being developed and proven as the pandemic was progressing. So only over the course of the last year was it really rapidly adopted. So it was really only a case of the potential of these approaches as only being realized as the pandemic was unfolding. So it, it takes a while to, to show how robust they are to start um, you know, getting public health people on board in terms of, you know, it's a new science in terms of trusting it and in terms of basing policy decisions on it. And has the, um, you know, the use of uh, this technique in SARS-CoV-2, has it fed your work with sea turtles at all in terms of, you know, cheaper technologies, better availability of, um, you know, sequencing or anything like that? Or is that is that still to come? I suspect it's still to come. The immediate effect of the pandemic was we use exactly the same um, technologies that are used to diagnose both in patients and wastewater at SARS. So, for instance, there's huge, there was huge delays um, for some of the, the plasticware, the plates that we use for QPCO, for example, or just thing, things like gloves and that. So initially, there has been potentially some delays caused by the pandemic, but ultimately, um, new technologies are being developed. They're also developing technologies um, partially on foot of the pandemic. The development of them has accelerated where you can actually just take your test out into the field and you can take your sample and you can get your results. You don't need any lab infrastructure. So this is obviously something, again, which would be useful for the developing world, but also for field biologists that we can go out and immediately while we're on site figure out if this virus in, in the area or if there's endangered species that we're looking for. That sounds like a you know an amazing potential. Um, you know what other kinds of things are on the forefront in this field? What other kinds of things should we be looking forward to? So it is really a case of all these technologies. Um, they've kind of been proven in the last year, and there's always a bit of a lag between when we receive a technology and figuring out all of the uses for it. Um, so it really seems to be in terms of human medicine. Um, I think actually one of the places that is going to benefit most from this is as you we're mentioning is, is developing countries where infrastructure is maybe not as robust as it is in, in more wealthy countries. So the ability to identify all of these, these pathogens, there's a lot of waterborne pathogens as well that, that can cause all sorts of um, diseases that, that you know we may have eradicated with 
due to um, adequate infrastructure here in terms of wastewater. But in, in other countries, people are still exposed to these very basic um, diseases that can still do a lot of damage. You know, there's a lot of things like blindness. There's lots of diseases that can spread. If we think of the, the HIV pandemic is still ongoing, especially in sub-Saharan Africa and countries like this, any, any pathogen um, is DNA or RNA based. So that means that these can be adapted to absolutely any any disease. Um, and the potential is, is kind of limitless, but it's also kind of currently untested. We're still in the in the, the phase where we're figuring out exactly how can these complement the existing clinical infrastructure that's in place. I'd also say kind of like back into the, the wildlife area of research as well is that um, obviously we've probably all become all too familiar with the rapid result testing and the lateral flow assays, mm -hmm. which essentially has taken um, what we do in the lab and put it in the field um, so that it's- Made it user-friendly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and they've actually, they've, they've already started to be able to do this um, specifically for looking for invasive crown of thorns sea stars in Australia. Um, so it's the same technology. It's a lateral flow assay, um, a bit like a home pregnancy test or a, a glucose test. Um, and so, yeah, I think because that has been so optimized and adapted for the pandemic, um, there's no reason why it couldn't be translated back into the the wildlife um, field of research so that, yeah, a lot of our lab work could maybe be done quicker and more efficiently in the field rather than bringing it back into a laboratory space. And it's also a case that the pandemic has refocused attention to the fact that most of the emerging diseases that affect humans actually come from, from animals, either be it farm animals, but primarily wildlife. Um, so we shouldn't just be monitoring human diseases using te these technologies. We should be a better push for monitoring potential zoonotic diseases, diseases which come from animals and can tr transmit to humans. Um, so as we know, um, although there's still some debate about specific species, we know that this coronavirus um, that's caused this pandemic originated in wildlife. And we also know that as wildlife is put under increasing pressure from humans, that they're becoming susceptible to more diseases. They're coming in closer contact with humans and livestock, which means that the rate of transmission of, of um, pathogens between wildlife, other animal uh, livestock species, and also humans is, is only increasing, which unfortunately means that the chances of pandemics happening is increasing, which is another reason why we should be proactively monitoring what diseases are in wildlife um, so that if any more do spread to humans, that we kind of already have an understanding of what they are um, and how they may behave the human population. Yeah, as it stands, um, a study done in 2017 said that 60% of all emerging human pathogens are zoonotic and 70% of those come from wildlife populations, so not just farm animals but um, wildlife animals as well. And it's kind of all the big pandemics that we've heard of that come from those, um, including Ebola, Zika, West Nile, Marburg viruses, all of that. Um, but that was a study done in 2017. Um, so four years on from then, we've already had more pandemics come from wildlife animals. So I wouldn't be surprised if that 60% is a lot higher um, now and kind of only is gonna continue. And that's a very interesting point about you know the the animals themselves being more stressed um, and that potentially being a contributor as well. I think we're you know we've we've all probably heard a lot about um, you know habitat encroachment and you know uh, greater concentrations, higher higher populations of people um, you know in close contact with wildlife. But it, there's also an effect um, you know in which the animals themselves, the wildlife, are 
being exposed to stresses, whether that be through, you know, pollution or, or warming, et cetera, that are causing them to potentially be more likely to be susceptible to, you know, to viruses that would then be passed along to humans. And this is exactly what we see in our sea turtles, that there's a virus there that usually, you know, you don't, it doesn't cause any dramatic disease. It's usually not present in turtles in any great load. But as soon as they're in a, a stressed environment, they're exposed to factors that are potentially weakening their immune system. The virus gets out of hand and that means as we should see they're shedding more virus into the environment so the more virus that's present in, in populations the more that's been shed the greater the chances that at some point there'll be another crossover event as well so actually by restoring habitats and giving optimal living environments for these species you're actually going to reduce the, the pathogen burden within them as well and just to add to that, um, so research has shown that with this uh, herpes virus specifically affecting these turtles, um, and as you said, James, with the uh, sort of warming effects of the, on the planet, um, research has shown that this uh, virus has been detected, or, the, or these turtles themselves are actually moving forward more as water's uh, warm. So it just sort of reiterates that wildlife diseases are more likely to spread to more sort of uh, unknown regions where they previously haven't been recorded um, and just add to sort of exacerbate the whole sort of uh, human wildlife uh, zoonotic diseases. Very true. Well, it's, it certainly sounds like a, a very valuable technology that uh, we unfortunately will be needing uh, with greater frequency in the future. Uh, but let's leave it there. And I'd like to thank you all very much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you, and talk to you next time.